from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace, and while we're at it, maximize our impact on the world around us. I am your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics for today's show with Amy Siskin. She's the president and co-founder of The New Agenda and author of The Weekly List. We're going to be talking about switching careers, activist entrepreneurship, and how Amy is leveraging the skills she developed on Wall Street to advance the well-being of girls and women and actually protect our democracy. Our phones are open, of course. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And we really would love to have you join the conversation. Once again, it's one 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. And if you have questions for Amy, whether it's about how you can stimulate your own activism, um, develop your own organization, or dare I say, start to engage your activism via social media, give us a call. We really love to hear from you. Once again, that's 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So our guest today, Amy Siskin, president and co-founder of The New Agenda, um, is going to be joining us to talk about all kinds of things. But first, let me give you a little background about her. In her first career, she was a pioneer in the distressed debt trading market, serving at the ripe old age of 31 as the first female managing director at Wasserstein Perella, after which she ran the trading departments at Morgan Stanley and Imperial Capital, where she was also a partner. Fast forward to today, and she's the president and co-founder of The New Agenda. It's a national organization focused on women's economic independence and advancement, addressing gender representation and eradicating bias, and the prevention of sexual assault and domestic violence. Um, Amy's a frequent source for national press, and she's also a regular columnist for the Huffington Post, and serving as a pioneer all over again in an unbelievably interesting way. Um, While she's still living life as a a self-professed jock, nerd, and happy gay mom, she's the singular force behind the increasingly important Weekly List. Archived by the Library of Congress, the Weekly List is published on Medium, available through Facebook and Twitter. And it's where she's documenting the daily erosions to our democracy that are actually becoming normalized with scary rapidity. So we're going to talk to Amy about all of this how and why she makes it happen, and how she's maintaining her surprisingly positive outlook on life while she's doing it. So if you have questions for her, you want to talk about the weekly list, give us a call. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And with that, I'll say, Amy, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you. And we're also thrilled that you're doing all the important work you're doing. But I want to start by taking a step backwards. Um, We have so many people here who are just starting their careers, um, embarking on Wall Street. And you went there, did that, and left it. What made you leave? Uh, And it was honestly difficult for me to leave because I loved what I did. And if you are in the same career and whatever you do, I suppose, after a couple decades, the people that you get to know become sort of a second family. So the personal part was very hard for me to leave, but I got to a point where I'd been doing the same thing for 20 years. I felt like I had sort of achieved my goals professionally in doing that part of it and um, financially got to a point where I could leave and my kids were in first and fourth grade and 
realized the time was fleeting with them and wanted to, I guess, have my cake and eat it too. So I, <laughs> I decided to shift gears. You make it sound like, you know, I'm going to shift gears and have my cake and eat it too, and I'm going to live in the lap of luxury and just have a good old time. But you've been anything except leisurely. Um, talk to me about why and how you started the new agenda. Well, waking up with purpose and finding something you do is, uh, I think, one of the most important things people um, do in life. I mean, whatever that is, if it's your your job, your non-for-profit work, whatever it is, there, ha- there has to be something when you wake up in the morning um, that you're really passionate about, that you, you know, zing out of bed, or even if you don't <laughs> zing out of bed, you think to yourself, this is something I'm, I'm really interested in, in doing. And I, and I got to a point with Wall Street where it, it just wasn't that for me anymore. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer generally for, and when I speak to women, especially young women, I tell them that your life is going to have a lot of chapters to it. So what yes. you start out doing, um, I think now starting a third chapter. Um, so you, you don't know where life is going to take you, but I think the most important thing you do in that first chapter is be in a position where you can be financially independent and find a job where you can support yourself. Uh, which I think is a little bit against the grain of what a lot of women are hearing today, that the most important thing is that they help other people. But my message to young women when I speak to them in colleges and and to young women that are already out in the professional world is um, it's sort of like the airplane analogy people use, that Mm -hmm. when the airplane goes down, grab your... First, you've got to put your own mask on before you can help anybody else. Right. You know, I, I think it's really important for women to help yourself first. There, there's plenty of opportunities if you have a, a, a job that is, makes you financially independent where you can also volunteer time or write checks to, you know, when I was a young woman working, I always wrote checks to Planned Parenthood or to the local domestic abuse shelter or, you know, donated time. But I, I think it's really important in that first step to, to focus on getting a degree and have a career where you can be financially independent. It's interesting. You're echoing what my grandmother told me, what my mother told me, and in a way what we've heard sometimes by default, sometimes on purpose from a lot of our guests, that um, being in control of your own financial destiny is a critical part of having the freedom to live your life as you want to. It's critical to your safety and it's critical to your well-being to not be dependent on somebody else. And the message right now is so different. I I typically speak to groups when I speak to colleges of all women, but sometimes Mm -hmm. the groups will be co-ed. And if I ask a co-ed group, what's more important to help people or make money? And I ask the guys first, almost all the hands will go up for make money and the exact opposite for the the women. And that is something new in this era. I think it's been plugged into our young women that they should be helping people. And so you see a huge rise in the number of people going into psychology or social work and a corresponding decrease in women going into careers, for example, on Wall Street. Um, and, I, you know, I just, I'm reminding women, which again, is a message they're not hearing of the importance that when you graduate, that you are in a career where you can, you know, that you find something where you can pay the rent. Uh, And maybe go for a nice vacation with your buddies once a year. (laughs) And it's just not a message that they're getting. And uh, having been in the women's advocacy space for the last decade, I can tell you that so many of the perils that face women in their lifetime have to do with being not financially independent. It limits our choices and can really put us at risk. But it's also not a binary option. Isn't it possible to to work in... um, 
a practical way that's also lucrative. Like we we talked with Tensi Whalen a couple of weeks ago, really about the role that business is increasingly playing and in being a force for good in a society where governments, in many ways, abdicating that role. Yes. And it's absolutely. Se- and women entrepreneurs who are really making an impact and doing good by creating work opportunities for other people. Yes, I. I, I mean, I'll give you a little anecdote. I'm on a, a council <clears throat> at Cornell where I went to school called the um, President's Council of Cornell Women, and once a year we have an event on campus and we invite in undergrads to to be mentored by us, and they kind of group us off by careers that we're in, and so now I'm in the helping career, the, you know, <laughs> running a not-for-profit, uh, so I'm, I, you know, get this overflow of people coming over to talk to me, and the message I gave them was, I think it's all great that you folks want to go into non-for-profit and help people, but don't have this be your first career. Uh, and I, I tell that to anybody. It's and it's it, because it, it, you know it, it's like going to the gym. You might love going to the gym, but if you work at the gym, it's not so much fun. These entry level jobs in the helping me, you know, careers, even though they seem great on paper, are not a great place to start. It's a great place to go later in life or to devote your time while you're working uh, or within your organization. Most every company has initiatives, as you were talking about, to help less privileged people or um, to expand diversity or help their community. So there are so many ways to give back. There, it also seems as if part of it is about understanding the implications of your choices and that if you're leaving school with debt and you want to live a certain way, those things don't always equate with not-for-profit work. Right. If, on the other hand, you are willing to live with that equation or you manage to get through school without financial obligations and you're willing to have the limitation of choices, you can go into entry-level roles, but it's going to be financially tight and it's going to limit your power to change your life as you go forward. Yeah, and and I I guess I can say this now, working on Wall Street for (laughs) 20 years and now this in the not-for-profit world for a decade, it's... You know, once you do the same thing for a decade, it becomes, I mean, it's it's not totally dissimilar. I still have, as a manager, to to do our taxes, to deal with legal contracts, the day in, day out right. kind of <laughs> stuff that is, is similar to what I did on Wall Street. And after, you know, years of doing anything, there, there was the stuff that I really enjoyed in Wall Street, other than, you know, the, the deals we were doing and whatnot, were also the giving back. I always had mentees women mentees when I was there, where a group of us got together and formed what became known as the Damsels in Distress, um, where we got together once a month with us, you know, more mature women and the younger women to mentor them. So there are always ways to be giving back no matter what you're doing. But yeah, I think it's a really important message coming out to start in a position where you can be financially independent. It also seems like there was something else that your particularly path gave you other than a kind of financial security that let you shift gears for career number two. Um, You learned a set of skills. You must have through the work that you did on Wall Street that have to be shaping the way that you're building the new agenda now. Yeah, and I think we're a different kind of organization that way because when we started, it wasn't started by um, people that were from a non-for-profit background. Um, The founding members and the people involved today are, for the most part, people that work for companies or come from a corporate background. So I think we... um, 
you know, look at things much more from that lens in life, which I think is different from some of the other non-for-profits, um, you know, for, you know, not judgmental one way or the other, just <laughs> right. somewhat different. But I, I think the skills of, uh, you know, are, are, there's a lot of carryover. I am astonished the, even though I was a math and econ and, and computer science, person in college, the importance of writing. <laughs> and, you know, it's, and I tell people when they want to go to Walter, I say, well, you have to be good at math, but you have to be just as good at communicating. So I think there's so many of these skills that um, are transferable. So uh, the ability to write, to communicate, to be responsive. When I worked at Morgan Stanley, our CEO was John Mack, and he used to say, if somebody in the firm writes to you an email, before you leave work that day, return their email. If they call you, same thing. I don't care if it's me, John Mack, or somebody who is a, yeah, a, a young, low-level employee. You always return that call or, or return the um, email. If, the, if we're having a meeting at 3 o'clock, at 3 o'clock the door to my office closes because if you come at 3.02, that means you don't respect my time. So those were the kind of, you know, uh, kind of plain kind of soups and nuts kind of things that I think are transferable <laughs> to all careers. So, yeah. uh, you know, the other things that I think are really important that people learn to do is, and, and it's even more important now. I mean, when I was in college, we still had typewriters. Um, Me too. That's <laughs> <laughs> so long ago. But we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have computers. Uh, there's so much thrown at you each and every day. It's really important to be able to do, to consume a lot of information and sort of boil it down to its kernel and, and, and be able to focus and stay focused. And I, I think that's sort of a skill that's been transferable to all that I've done as well. It makes a lot of sense. And I have to say, even though my trajectory was almost the opposite, I started in art school and I'm now at Wharton. Um, one of the gifts of having our different careers as we mature is that we take these skill sets and they come with us and the experiences come with us. And the things that we learned in the trenches, we get to apply. And hopefully in places where we feel um, that our passion is ignited in increasingly meaningful ways. Um, And so with that, I want to ask, why the new agenda? What made you start it? Um, Was it really with Hillary, 30 Hillary supporters? And that was it? Yeah, it's hard to. I mean, the the 2008 election for your the members of your audience who are are old enough to have been engaged during that election was it was the first real elect um, time that a woman ran and was a viable candidate, mm-hmm. and uh, I, it was really a, an election. This one felt a little bit more money driven on the Democratic side. That time was really just about passion and first woman running, and there were a number of us around the country when Hillary dropped out that did different things with that upset of her not being um, the candidate. There was uh, kind of a sister organization to what we did out West called Women Count um, that started a little bit before we did. Uh, and then there were ancillary organizations as well. I, I, we, we're pretty much the one left standing, but when we met, right after she had dropped out, and it was kind of an unusual time, um, right after she dropped out, Carly Fiorina, who was a spokesperson for McCain, came to my home and said, what do we, what do we need to do to get you all to support McCain? And people's nerves were very raw at that, at that stage. And 
So two weeks later, we decided instead of that, why don't we sit down and figure out what we should do next? And 30 of us sat in my living room and came up with something at the time, and perhaps even still today, was kind of revolutionary, which was for women to succeed, we had to be um, an organization that would be inclusive of all women, and that meant Democrats and Republicans. So uh, I don't think there are many organizations <laughs> today no. that operate that so, way. So at Give me one minute, because I just want to point out, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Amy Siskin, who's the president and co-founder of The New Agenda. If you have a question about what we're discussing, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you um, at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And tell us, do you think you can make a difference and make money at the same time? What choices have you made? And can you believe that women can work across the aisles to advance women in general? Um, so with that, Amy, talk to me about how you moved from dealing almost with, um, I'd say, a, a, a grief that we know is almost like a precursor of a much bigger one to come about Hillary pulling out and shifted not to... Um, mobilizing around a party, but mobilizing um, from a gender perspective and across the aisle. And I just want to highlight something you uh, pick up on something you, you were saying there, which was the importance of understanding that things that don't go your way lead to your greatest successes. And I know it's kind of something that you know, <laughs> is hackneyed because we hear it so much, but there's a reason why we hear it so much. <laughs> yes. I mean, for me, Hillary losing in 2008 and dropping out was the beginning of a whole new um, chapter in my life. And again, you know, what happened in this election um, and, and what I did next uh, was, again, a new chapter in my life. So I think we I think our country changes, too. I think whenever, mm-hmm. as a country, we take a step back, we take two steps forward. But as well as individuals, I'm seeing so many people now galvanized, impassioned, involved, engaged in what's going on in our country, um, more so than I've ever seen. I mean, you could call it the resistance. You can call it whatever informal name. You could call it the millions of people that showed up for the Women's March. Um, our country is changing in fundamental ways. And it's terrible right now, but it's exciting <laughs> as well. And you you can just see all the women that are running for office and all the women leaders who are galvanized to do something different and do something better. Um, so these are, you know, in, in, inflection points where we really start to see, I'm hoping, some real progress. Me too. And it's part of why I'm so intrigued by the work that you're doing, because um, we have a, we've always had party boundaries, but what's become party lines has become like a huge default line in this country. It's almost like it's where the earthquake is happening. And yeah. it's scary. And so this idea of how you I, I really I, I know it's it was a small moment that led to bigger moments. How did you come to that notion that you should include that all in order for women to advance, it had to be all women? And it was something that literally after we decided Half the women in that meeting just just knew they couldn't be part of taking it forward. There were women who ran um, uh, organizations that were devoted to the issue of choice. And in order to be nonpartisan, we had to decide not to take on that issue. And we had to decide to include Republican women. And eventually, when we formed our board, it was half Republican and half Democrat. And then it naturally just grew from there. 
So I, I, I still, to this day, I'll give you a real-world example. Yesterday, when people started tacking Melania for her shoes that she wore before she got on the plane, I caution people how we treat one woman in public life mm-hmm. is how we legitimize the treatment for all women, period. So, you know, I think it's so easy for women to attack other women, and especially if they're Republican women. And the experience in the last decade of being in a nonpartisan organization where we really are, we've truly walked the walk of inclusiveness. I mean, we, um, we our panel for this last year had all women of color. The year before, we were the first women's organization to have a, a transgender woman panelist. You know, we, we really walk the walk of trying to be on the leading edge of including everybody. Um, and I just think it's something that is just not, <laughs> it's really hard for people to swallow. It's really reflexively <laughs> easy for women to hate uh, women of the other party. Absolutely. And um, I think the thing about Melania's shoes, so for people who aren't up to speed on the story, um, you know, photographers are around the first couple, every first couple, all the time. And Melania was boarding Air Force One to fly to Texas, and she was wearing a pair of, you know, major stilettos, the kind of shoes that most people can never own, never mind walk in. Um, and there was a lot of criticism about um, how people said how Marie Antoinette it was and how out of touch it was. Well, she came off the plane with her Flotus baseball cap, a crisp cotton shirt, a pair of sneakers, um, appropriate to walk into a disaster zone. And while the New York Times uh, style writer wrote kind of an interesting piece on the symbols of what we wear, you're bringing up a really big issue of how we treat each other and the big danger of focusing on what we look like instead of what we do. Is that a fair way of summarizing it? Yeah, because if we're, and and in fairness, I wore different shoes to work every day. I still do, like if I'm going to give a a speech or if I'm going to a meeting, I, I wear one pair of shoes. And when I get there, I put on a different pair of shoes, which is what Melania did now. I have girlfriends who wear stilettos all the time because they find them comfortable. I, uh, I would much rather be in a pair of sneakers if I had my, you know. If I, I came in my in my dress choice. shoes and put my Birkenstocks on while I'm on the air. But I, I think the broader point you're making is when we start to define women by their looks mm-hmm. and what they're wearing, then that becomes the norm. Then we start to look at, there was a, a man who, you know, tried to make a joke at my comment. And I said to him, it's easy when you're, a white man, because you're going to be judged on your ideas and your opinions. But for women, the first line of defense is, what does she look like? Right. And in the same way that we were aghast at how Megyn Kelly was treated, uh, the things that were said about Hillary, we can't then in turn lobby it in the other direction. Right. It doesn't help anybody. Right. So this issue, though, of image, identity, um, how we treat one another, I it seems like this is about this comes um, to play in more than just how you're reacting to a news story. It seems like part of the fundamental work of the new agenda. It is, and I'm just much more aware of things and just look at things differently because of doing that work for the last decade. Um, when you look at the world from the vantage point of women first and what advances women, you have to look at it right with that broader base, and especially now since the election when so many, like week by week in the weekly list, things are being taken away from women, um, organizations that protect us, parts of the government that protect us. It's 
uh, our representation week by week, um, it's more important than ever that women sort of band together and support each other in any ways we can. In addition to all the other work we're doing to support other marginalized communities, I, I think people just aren't aware of how much damage is being done for, to women and girls in, in this administration. Surely not. Let's start, though. I want to take a step back. Tell us what the new agenda is. What is the organization? What's your mission? How are you operating? Yeah, so we have, um, there's two parts to what we do. The main organization, the new agenda, is Mm -hmm. focused on how women are treated in the media, in the workplace, at home, which in 2008, what we really were awakened to is the way women were portrayed in the media. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Hillary, are you likable enough? And what is how much did Hillary spend on a haircut? Which is the same stuff we're talking about with Melania, really, and why that was okay, and why women still in this election were being judged as untruthful. That's just sort of there's certain things that we bring to the table that are literally as old as Adam and Eve, um, that women can't be trusted, that they lie. So, uh, you know, that's what we do. With our work there, each year we have an annual event called National Girlfriends Networking Day. Um, it's typically held on June 4th, the day women got their approval in Congress to vote. And it's a way for women all around the country to kind of connect and feel empowered. And we, we host a panel that gets streamed to events around the country. Last year we had 50 locations. We had 14 million tweets during the event. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And we really, it's interesting how the journey goes because we are so focused on inclusiveness. inclusiveness, It's really taken us in the direction of college and millennial women um, have really become our target audience. And so um, that's where, you know, we've put our energy. So we do that big event. We, since the election, have started something called the Rent Red Tent Initiative, mm-hmm. where we provide information kits for people to get together and um, talk about what's happening in our country as relates to women specifically, representation of women, issues that impact women, resistance issues um, specific, again, to women since November. Uh, and then we have a foundation whose main issue is is campus sexual assault, and we're actually coming up on our big annual event, which is in October, where we do races around the country um, on our co- on college campuses, and we'd love to do one at UPenn. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so we'll see how in. we can help make that happen. If any students want to host, uh, and we we make it super easy for whoever wants to host, but we. The idea is to raise awareness of this issue, which, again, is another issue where women are moving backwards because that's a list. There's a list that was made to hold colleges accountable for mishandling sexual assault under Chapter 9. And um, already the Obama administration, that was put together under the Obama administration, but already Betsy DeVos had said they they won't be continuing that work. We need to take a short break. While we're on break, you might want to check out thenewagenda.net so you can learn more about what what they're doing. And then Amy and I will be back to continue our conversation about maximizing impact. I'm Laura Zarrow. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women 
Join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and maximize their impact on the world that we live in. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Amy Siskin. She's the president and co-founder of The New Agenda and author of of the weekly list. Um, In the first half hour of our show, we were talking about Amy's background on Wall Street, um, how she ended and started, ended her first career, launched a second one, where this is really her chance to maximize her impact and um, do something that really matters to her and the rest of us. Um, If you want to join in the conversation, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We'd love you to join in the conversation with that. Amy, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you for having me. So before the break, you were um, we were running out of time, but importantly, you were talking about the work of New Agenda and how a portion of your work is aimed towards women and a portion of your work is actually aimed towards girls, women who are just emerging into their adult and professional lives. Could you talk a little bit about, um, you're mentioning a few of your programs, but how this relates to the strategy of New Agenda? Yeah, I, w- I would say our cutoff age is really, we start with college women. So we do a lot on college campuses. We do the run for, uh, to raise campus, to raise awareness of campus sexual assault. We have a young woman leadership council, which if anybody is interested in, please write to me on our website. That is a, a real leadership opportunity for about 30 women each year to be an active player on their campuses. And our young women leaders then are also involved um, with our main event, the National Girlfriends Networking Day, where they work either at the main event in New York or talk about our organization in other cities where we're holding events. So a lot of what we do is uh, targeted, but we we sort of, I I would say, the, the line we draw for the most part for being involved in our stuff is is once you go to college. We do have some programming that we make available to high schools and middle schools mm-hmm. about um, dating abuse yeah. and um, sexual assault, which actually starts, sadly, at those ages. Right. We so, need you to be there at those ages. Oh, yeah. We, we have a, a wonderful educational video. If, you're, if you have a child heading off to college or if you are in college on our website, um, called Gray Matters. Yeah, and- I was Amy, I got to tell you I was watching it yesterday. Um, it brought back the kind of intense concern it might be a, a gross understatement that I felt when I read um, Peggy Orenstein's book, Girls and Sex, and really bringing home um, the dangers that kids are facing now, um, how increasingly complicated it's become, how dangerous it is. Um, and I thought the videos did an excellent job of portraying it. And the, if people want to find them, they can get it at the newagenda.net website, correct? Right. It's right under our, our link for STOP, which is our Stop, Think, Protect Your Peers, um, the run that we do in October. It's right underneath that. It's called Gray Matters. And the money that we raise from doing these walk runs goes to make educational content. And that Gray Matters video and the resources are being used by a number of colleges for their freshman orientation um, or for programming they do around Title IX. Look, I, I even started talking about it with my high school age daughter at home last night over the dinner table. Um, there was a, a it's kind of the pun that it's the ending statement. It's what you build up to. And I hope you don't mind if I'm giving away the punchline because no, it's certainly it's not a joke. Yeah. But the this core message that if she's too drunk to drive, she's too drunk to consent. Yes. How did you get to that kind of clarity, and what do you find the reaction is to it? You know, it actually, it comes from our young women leaders. 
I have to say, one of, or one of the successes we have is instead of like guessing what matters to them, we they're incorporated in everything we do as an organization. We form subcommittees for every initiative we, we do, and we include our young women leaders. So we hear from college women what's going on. I, I have them at my house every summer to talk to them about what's happening on campuses and what it's like for them. Um, so all those ideas and the and that line came from college women and and that sort of comparison because it's it's not something I would have drawn or thought of it's it's their way of looking it, at the world and boiling it down to something that made sense. Yes, and one of the things that I think has happened successfully, certainly since we were in high school, is a kind of clarity about the dangers of drunk driving and the importance of designated drivers. And so if we have a generation who's internalized that message, I think this is a really powerful way to take something they've already accepted and build upon it in a way that gives them a very clear way of making a decision. Yes, yes. And it's just something, you know, we're about to launch next week a couple of videos for for our race this year. Um, And the one that we did that, again, was a suggestion of our young women leaders was 10 ways to say no. And it's just a two-minute video or maybe, you know what, actually that one is 30 seconds long. And it's just 10 lines um, that, you know, young women can share on their social media, on Snapchat or Instagram where they can, you know, it's just quick lines of this is ways to say no. Um, Just hopefully one of the 10 sticks in your head when you're in that kind of situation where there's an expectation that you're not comfortable with, that you can, one of those lines will come to mind and and will be something that you can use. The other thing that's so powerful in this is this, you are making an arena for women to emerge as leaders. Yeah. And so one of the things about the Red Tent Meetups that I thought it's fascinating is that um, there are there's a distributed organization model. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works and if people want to get involved creating the Red Tent Meetups, what do they do and what roles are there for them? So we launched this shortly after the election and the first one that we had, which was I think in February or March, we had 60 locations around the country and a lot of them were in red states. It's it's an excuse to get together and learn something basically um and the the idea behind this initiative was so many of the issues and there's so much information out there but there aren't that many ways to boil it down to what how it impacts women right now like uh, what so our first packet was about um you know the the trump cabinet and how the the different appointments were going to impact women um, and then we did one about all the issues under his administration that were impacting women already. And I, I think there's just a lack of awareness of sort of tying those together. So the one that we have out now that people can use is um, a resource to kind of recharge and get ready for future battle. It, it's a way to find, it's called Finding Your Voice. You can find it on our website if you go to Red Tent. And all you do is you print out the packet. It's um, basically, I, I've posted them in my home for every Red Tent meeting. You have a group of people at your home. Uh, some of our college students have done it on their campuses at the Student Center. And you read each section, and then with each section, there's a video that you pop up on your TV and you watch together that kind of goes with the section. There's four sections, and then you have an opportunity with each section to discuss it with people in the room and their own per, you know, perception of what's going on, how it's impacted their lives, what they've learned from their reading and then in the media. 
And it's just a nice excuse to get together and feel like you've learned something and also feel empowered. So um, question about who is and isn't in the room. Um, This is nonpartisan as well, yes? It is. You know, and this is something interesting for us as an organization because even though we're nonpartisan, uh, since Trump took office, it's kind of a different paradigm for us. Mm -hmm. And it's something I talk about if we jump to my list. Yes. That this really isn't about... Democrat or Republican what's happening in our country now. It's it's really a fight for our democracy. Uh, it's more to me the construct is democracy versus the authoritarian state. So as a board, um, at, the, at the time of the election, shortly after, we talked about it. And it's, it's, you know, although we have agitated, for example, with Obama, we at first were one of the first organizations to agitate for him to have more women in his cabinet. Mm-hmm. We agitated for him to have his first woman this or that, and that's part of what we do. Um, that this wasn't a. It was pretty clear early on that Trump didn't really care about this stuff. That <laughs> right. he he picked a cabinet that was had less women than any cabinet since Ronald Reagan. Um, so it, it was clear that he was not going to care about our issues and. Uh, so what we decided is that this was just going to be a slightly different time for us as an organization. We would find our, our way back after, but for now, it, it's really about defending women broadly. But that means taking on this administration in a different way. Indeed. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is Amy Siskin. She's the president of The New Agenda, and she is also the author of The Weekly List. So with that, Amy, could you tell us what is The Weekly List? When did you start it? What's its purpose? Yeah, this has been another strange journey. So uh, after the election, I just consumed a lot of reading material. I felt like I never really stopped, but I was really concerned by the tone of his campaign and what was coming next. And I read a number of articles about authoritarianism, and a common thread of the articles seemed to be that things would change around you in a subtle way that you wouldn't necessarily notice. So as you sit here today, November 7th, write things down. And an, an interesting anecdote that I've sort of heard as a comparison that if you put a, wa- a frog in boiling water and you, you know, it increases by one degree at a time, you don't feel it until it's too late. <laughs> so, so that was kind of the thought process behind it. And I, um, shortly after the election, the Saturday, a week after, went to Val Kill, which was which is Eleanor Roosevelt's home, which is sort of my place for inspiration. And she also wrote things down. She did a column each day called My Day. And I went home that night after Val Kill and did the first weekly list, which was, I think, nine items. And I just decided once a week I was going to make a list of everything that was not normal, because already there were things not normal. He was attacking the cast of Hamilton. He was still going to be the producer of Celebrity Apprentice. I mean, even before he took office, there were so many not normal things um, that I just started to write them down. And this kind of, you know, went on and, and... the government really, using his hotel for government business. Yeah, yeah. Or, well, at first he said he was going to give that money back to the government, but of course he hasn't. There's right. just so many. I mean, and so the list started out relatively short, not a huge undertaking. Long story short, around the time he took office, they jumped to around 30 to 40 items. And as we got underway, then to 60 to 70. And now 
Each week it's over 100 items of not normal, of, of things that are just a threat to our democracy, um, the way that he's deconstructing our government, not staffing key roles, taking on the legislative branch, including his own party, taking on the judicial branch. Um, taking on the media as enemies of the people. And as you pointed out before, this is not the division of Republican and Democrat. This is about democracy versus sliding into authoritarianism. Yes. And that's why it's so dangerous. Yes, yes. That these norms that we count on, if you just think about what's happened since Monday, um, you know, going to Austin and saying, wow, look at the size of this crowd and not commenting on the people who have lost their lives or the people whose homes have been destroyed. Uh, the day before having that conference where you said, well, I announced Joe Opaya's pardon during Hurricane Harvey because I knew it would get high ratings. I mean, this stuff is happening day in, day out that you just like, wow, this is not right. And that there isn't even an illusion. Oh, my God, all this happened all this week. (laughs) And then, yeah, so so the good thing you can do with the list is it's there for you Saturday. This all happened this week, these 100. And I and I see a lot of things that people might not have noticed. All these things have happened that are just not normal. What? How much time are you spending on the list each week? And what is it? How is it changing you to be spending time on this? I, yeah, I mean, and I, at this point, obviously, there's be. no turning back because it's it's being archived in the Library of Congress, and it's, um, you know, I'm the one person in the country who has kept track, and so I, I obviously take it really seriously as my civic duty. When I, when I started, it wasn't, you know, that big of a deal. At this point, it takes 20 to 30 hours a week in addition to life before <laughs> right, but in addition to running a whole organization and parenting and having a life. <laughs> yes, trying to have a life. So I, I, I basically haven't been able to take a day off since the election. Um, so I, you know, because I'm always watching the news and there's so much each day gets more and more chaos. And um, Is I, I really find that by the end of the week, I'm making a list and saying, oh, my God, this happened Monday of this week or Tuesday. It was the same week. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's Is kind of this a- um, cathartic for you? Is it igniting you? Um, you know, what are you doing with these feelings? Like, are you eating in addition to doing this? Are you eating your feelings like Tina Fey did on Saturday Night Live? Because like. Even with our activism, there's the question of what we do while we're hoping and waiting for the activism to take effect. So, in, you know, in addition to doing the list, with that comes an amount of visibility, and I have something big next week that's going to even make it more visible. But I, I now have a quarter million followers between Facebook and quarter million and, and one. <laughs> Uh, between Facebook and, and Twitter. So I, 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 everything I do is criticized. I'm under a microscope, and I'm and the amount of hatred that I endure from the far left or the far right, like everything <laughs> I do is, oh, my God. You know, so that, um, I had a little bit of that running a women's organization, but it's really relentless. I, you know, I can be criticized from the far right and the far left on the same issue in a given day. And, um it, it, the amount of hatred is really um, hard to absorb. So it, it, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, I'm, I, I have kept certain things in my life that I am tied to every day. And that includes like going to the trail every day with the dogs, going to the gym every day that I can 
um, you know, maintaining that kind of level of normalcy. But it's 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 really um, I'm, I'm not sure many people could do this. It, it involves no. a lot of coping. Well, and it also is something that we hear as one of the key fears that women have who want to go into activism and particularly public service. When you think about not just the hard work of serving, but yeah. campaigning yeah. and how painful it is, how brutal it is. And you're do and this is just from one social media list. This is not you as a candidate for office or a candidate exactly. for the presidency. Exactly. Um, and uh, it's unrelenting. You know, this is the way I deal with it. I, I have learned, first of all, I don't mind not being liked by people. Uh, you know, and that's something I picked up on Wall Street. Uh, <laughs> right. I advise everybody. If you're it's a not a warm, really fuzzy press, place. If there are people that don't like me, I'm fine with that. And also, if people are disrespectful to me on any on Facebook, on Twitter, or now they find me on Medium, I block them. You know, it it it, 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 it it's not constructive criticism. Constructive criticism in 140 characters, and um, you just have to honor having your voice and not let the haters get in the way of having your voice. It's so important now more than ever that women find their voice and just block people. If somebody's bothering you, let it go. Let it go. Just keep going forward and have your voice. I, you know, I'm hoping that other people watching what I'm doing will just be inspired by it and want to speak out because it's our really our greatest hope on social media is for women to, to have a voice there. So that's one of the other things I find um, really inspiring and interesting about this is um, in an era where um, the news media as a whole is being um, perpetually knocked down by the White House yep. and our modes of consuming information are changing, um, digital technology and social media empowers all of us in a way to become journalists and broadcasters. Yes. You've become that, clearly. Yes. How did you decide which platforms to publish on, how you wanted to approach this? And would you change any of it if you were starting it over today? The reason I did it, I put the list each week on um, first Facebook because you can kind of itemize things, and then I screenshot them and put them on Twitter, and then I put a version on Medium where there's source links. Um, and then this fall, I'm going to work with a woman who built out the website for the new agenda to put together a proper website for all the resources and videos to live. But um, I, you know, I, I don't know what the right answer to that is. I, I, I did that in all those different spaces, honestly, because I was concerned that it would get hacked and it would disappear mm -hmm. and all the hard work would disappear, which is Another reason I'm so grateful for the Library of Congress archiving it. Um, but, I, you know, it's, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, it's, it's um, you know, these, these platforms, people are, are pretty terrible um, to each other. And you just have to learn to um, ignore it and move on. And each day you have your message and what you want to accomplish, and you keep using your voice. I think partly Twitter, there's a reason why there are less people on Twitter than Facebook. I think Facebook tends to be better about things um, as far as spreading a message and having a voice. Well, it's also you have more than 140 characters. It makes a fundamental difference in the complexity with which you can communicate. Right. I. It's really hard for me. I, that's in part, like when people start with the hateful stuff on Twitter, I can't respond in 140 characters. No. And, it, and, and so it's just like enough already. If, I mean, I think some, there's just a lot of anger in this country, and that's fine. But if it's 
this place then on something which it doesn't seem proper, you just get rid of it. Um, yeah, and that's why Facebook is better because, and a lot of times I'll write my thoughts on Facebook, copy it, you know, and screenshot it and put it on, on Twitter. I, I really struggle with Twitter to fit in what I'm trying to say into those 140 characters. And, and there's clearly a lot to be said here. Yeah. Um, take a yeah. step back for a second. Um, how did the Library of Congress find you and this, and why are they archiving it? So I um, was sort of waiting for the right writer and the right publication and a a woman who I'm a big fan of at the Washington Post, uh, Margaret Sullivan, found me actually through a college professor. And she interviewed me in early July about the list. And it was sort of my, I guess, for lack of a better word, coming out story, even though at that point, the list was getting hundreds of thousands of views each week. I'd been waiting for the right opportunity to have that story be told. And shortly after that, that was actually at the end of June, I guess somebody read it and recommended it to the Library of Congress, and they reached out to me and just asked permission to be able to archive it. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's once in a while I take in the import that it is the one, you know, way of kind of tracing our way back where we have all the information. And there's also a, a gentleman from Washington who did this wonderful thing called the Tableau, um, which I always... It's in all the articles, and it's also, if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, I post it in, as a link, too. It allows you to sort every week. So Felix Satter will appear, or Deutsche Bank, all mm-hmm. of a sudden, and then you can go back and look at all the weekly lists and see when have they been here before. Or so if you have a, an issue that you're particularly concerned about, you can um, search on that and see what the pattern yeah, is. Yeah, like you want to see what's going on with immigration, you can search by ICE, or you can look under women's rights and look under, you know, the White House Council of Women and Girls disappearing yesterday. Um, Trump saying he's not going to ask for information from companies on whether they're paying fairly based on gender or race anymore. Right. So the accountability is going away. Yes. Those are the kind of things week week in, week out, the protections that are getting taken away. You can Google, excuse me, you can look up on the Tableau and sort by them and find those. Given how important this is and how it's clearly um, growing, it's not abating, the work required is not diminishing, um, and, you know, you're now an accomplished entrepreneur and business thinker, um, what's next for the list? How are you planning for its ongoing maintenance, or haven't you got there yet? I haven't got there. A lot of people are asking that question, and I, I take it as my civic duty to keep going as long as Trump is in office, which is really not pleasant, obviously. <laughs> but um, I, I, I get the importance of it. Um, so I'm going to keep going as long as it goes. And, and where it goes from there, I, I don't if know the answer. people want to help you, is this a kind of thing where it's really your personal voice? And, and, and I, as an artist and a person who's facilitated art making, there's a way that by your doing it alone, it's almost like a piece of political performance art um, and huge political activism. Is it something where you'd welcome other people in if they wanted to take the burden off? Or is there something about doing this alone that's important to you? No, you know, I, I and I get asked that a lot. So thank you for asking. I um, and I've had a lot of people volunteer to help. And, and I'm, I actually know how to, like, manage things. I run an organization <laughs> right. of, of all volunteers where, at this point, there's 50 to 100 people involved in what we do. I ran departments on Wall Street. This is, unfortunately, for better or worse, at this point, a one-woman job. Um, just to have the consistency of how I pulled up the material and how I've documented it, I, I just haven't 
found a way um, where I, where it can be done by delegating, unfortunately. So I, I think the burden is on me just for consistency of how the, again, how the information is gathered, how it's culled through, just so that all of a sudden we'll have a jump up or things that people think should be included that, in my mind, you know, two months ago weren't included for that consistency. Unfortunately, it's a one-person job. But I do have people on Twitter that, like, tweet me stuff or on Facebook that send me stuff like, oh, did you see this? And, and if Is it's that from helpful? a legitimate source, then I, a lot of times I have seen it, but if not, then I'll try to find it from a source worth quoting. I really try to keep the weekly list to really just the top-notch media sources. Amy, it is, um, I don't know if we can call it a labor of love or it's a labor of fear and civic hope duty. and rage <laughs> and civic duty, but I'm great, grateful on behalf of all of us for the efforts you're making to try and preserve our democracy, while at the same time advance all women in this really um, bipartisan way. The work that you're doing is extraordinary, Amy, and thank you thank for sharing you. your time with us on Women at Work. Thank you so much for having me. If people want to find out more about what you're doing, where should they look? So for for um, the new agenda, it's thenewagenda.net. On Facebook, you can just look by my name. The last name is S-I-S-K-I-N-D. On Twitter, it's Amy underscore Siskind. Uh, and on Medium, it's Medium at Medium. And, you know, it's actually probably just easier. If you find me on Facebook or Twitter, you'll see my list and you can find it from there. And if you come back, if you check back in another month or two, I'll have a formal website, a beautiful website with all the all the lists and all the move on videos that I've done related to the list and all the resources. Well, we're looking forward to all of it, Amy. Thank you for the work you're doing and thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. And thank you everyone for listening. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. And if you want to check out back episodes, you can find us on SoundCloud. SoundCloud.com backslash women at work a special thank you to my guest amy siskin i'd also like to thank patty hall her excellent stand-in today dana cash our fabulous sound engineer tatiana zamis i'm laura zaro and you've been listening to women at work on business radio powered by the wharton school and the world and the world you will live and help each man be a better man with the kind